two months ago, we started a fifth and final section of our study of Romans called The Practice. Called The Practice simply because when you hit Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, what Paul does is he begins describing what the practical outpouring would look like of a life that has been invaded by God's mercy through his son Jesus. We go from being merely hearers to doers right at chapter 12 verse 1 where Paul really helps ask those questions. What does it look like? As we said when we began this section, one of the great things coming out of chapter 12, verse 1, is the reminder that we don't receive God's mercy by doing. We receive God's mercy that propels us forward into doing. That salvation through Jesus is a gift of grace and mercy. There's nothing we can do to receive it. But we still have to ask the question, what does a life look like when it has received it. And that's what we've been looking at over the last couple of months. Some of the things just to remind you of what Paul's hit with us is that in chapter 12, verses three to eight, we lasered in on our relationship to others in terms of using our spiritual gifts. What does it look like? What does it look like when we come together and we start using the gifts that the Holy Spirit gifts us with? In chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, we did the same with our relationship to our enemies and those who persecute us. What does a mercy-receiving person look like in response to those who are our enemies? We hit chapter 13, and in the first seven verses, we focused on our relationship to the government. What does that look like? What does that get fleshed out like? In chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, we looked at the only debt that we are to carry, that debt of love. It's the only debt that will never pay off. In chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, we really focus on the importance of time. If you remember that, the days are short, the time is now, which should not only encourage us, it should motivate us as well. And then in, in beginning with chapter 14, running all the way through our text today, verse 13 of chapter 15, we've been in the midst of this discussion surrounding the relationship of strong and weak Christians. A discussion that reminds us that in the midst of this practical outpouring of our lives of people who received God's mercy, that nothing less than the gospel is at stake. We've talked about that much. We've talked about why this is so important to Paul because when we don't welcome people, we display that we haven't really grasped the gospel or at the very least, we're not willing to extend it. When we don't bear with the weak, we're demonstrating that we haven't quite grasped what Jesus has done for us for he bore our weaknesses and our sins. We looked at that last week. And again, that's why this is so important to Paul. For the gospel is at stake. As I said last week, Few things evidence the gospel's reality in our lives more than does our willingness to love, welcome, and bear each other, bear with each other, with few things calling into question the gospel's reality in our lives when we choose not to. We're going to put this topic to bed this morning. We've spent a few weeks in, in it now by turning the tables a little bit going from what has been predominantly negative commands to springboarding forward out of a positive one. Now, what do I mean by negative commands? I mean that there's been a lot of do nots in what we've seen already. If you just put your pretty eyes back to chapter 13 and 14, specifically 14, we read a lot, we begin to read a lot of do nots. 
Uh, verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. If you drop down to verse 13, let, not, let us not pass judgment. If you drop down to verse 15, do not destroy the ones. Verse 16, do not let what you regard. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy. Verse 21, it's not good to not eat meat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine. Verse Verse 1 of chapter 15, we are not to please ourselves. Verse 3, same chapter, Christ did not please himself. A lot of do nots, a lot of negative commands. Not negative in that they're bad, they're just negative. Like I said, a lot of do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. I do believe, as I taught a couple of weeks ago, that every negative command is truly a positive command under the great umbrella of the great command that we are to love one another. So I get that, but a transition does take place in verse 7 of chapter 15, a verse that we ended with last week, the verse I'm going to double back on and begin with this week, a verse that begins to wrap up this topic, and a verse that also begins section 1 of today's text, a section that I'm simply calling the instruction. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul writes there, therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Simple instruction, easy to get, don't need to be a master theologian to understand it. We are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. We looked at that last week, as I've already said. But I do want to slow down a little bit, and I do want to laser in on that word welcome, because it's a really important word. It's a word that doesn't mean what we mean today when we use it. It's not simply talking about a welcoming like you would welcome someone to your home or your office or when you, you greet them at a door. Perhaps when you walked in here, someone said, hey, welcome here. It's more than that. It's deeper and more significant than that. It's a word that literally means to welcome someone by pulling them close. It's a word that speaks of taking someone or something to heart. It's used in several places in the New Testament. One of the more well-known is in Mark 8.32. This is the verse that comes out of Jesus declaring that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to, he's going to be beaten there. He's going to die there. He's going to be buried there. And he's going to raise from the grave there. And that's where Peter says, uh-uh. This is what it says. Jesus said this plainly. And then it says this about Peter. Peter took him aside. There's our word translated here that way. He took him aside, literally pulled him aside. You sense emotion in that. This is for a negative reason, but it's the same connotation. There is, it's more than simply, hey, good to have you. It's this pulling, this drawing close, and he began to rebuke him. In a positive sense, this call to welcome or receive someone doesn't simply mean to make room, but like I said, it's a pulling close. In context, it's drawing close for relationship, unity, and for gospel's sake, which is not always easy as we know, especially when we differ on opinions that we are passionate about. Uh, that's hit home in a very real way for me this week. I spent a lot of time this week in discussions with people involved in ministries or heard reports about ministries that are divided. There's faction. I sit on a couple of boards. Part of that 
role that I have is hearing a lot of good stories, but part of that role that I have in serving on this particular board is hearing about the churches that are going through really, really difficult times where people just can't even sit in the same room anymore. Really difficult when a group of people want to and others are choosing not to. Where ministries are literally cracking and, and, and failing and disparaging the gospel. That's why Paul is passionate about this. That's why we need to be passionate about this because we can't have that here. And, and, and again, really important stuff that we hold on to. That's what makes this so difficult. I've tried to hit that quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. I'm not talking about minor issues. I'm talking about non-essential issues, meaning these aren't issues that get you into the kingdom. But I'm not talking about issues that you're not passionate about or I'm not passionate about. But we're talking about issues that we need to lay aside for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel. And so coming out of a week like this and then going into this text, it's very real. And some of you can tell similar stories, maybe not in ministries, but maybe in your own family, maybe in your own marriage, maybe you've had fractured relationships with someone who was special at one time and now you can't stand them or they can't stand you. And this is, this is real, re very real to you. Perhaps the best way of understanding this call to welcome like Jesus welcomes is by asking the question, like I asked last week again today, how did Jesus welcome us? Well, as we hit last week, he welcomed us, number one, as sinners. In fact, that was the most common refrain leveled against him. The greatest accusation leveled against the enemies of Jesus during his ministry was he welcomes or receives sinners. For example, in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man, speaking of Jesus, receives or welcomes sinners and eats with them. This was tantamount to treason. This is sleeping with the enemy. See, in their mind's eye, if you're not with us, you're an enemy of us. If you're not following God, you're against God. How can you, saying that you are a prophet of God, eat and receive sinners and dine with them? Something that was as intimate as that. But as we looked at last week, we asked the question, why did Jesus welcome and receive sinners? Well, he welcomed them to change them. He came to the sick, physically sick, certainly, but spiritually speaking, sick as well, to heal them. But here's, here's the thing about spiritually sick people, especially. Most often, they don't realize they're sick until someone spends time breaking bread with them. Drawing close, in other words, building a relationship and saying, come and follow me. Come and see. Jesus didn't just befriend sinners just for that sake. He befriended them so that he could invade their lives with his physician gifting. He came for the sick. He built relationship with the sick. He ate with them. He spent time with them. He touched them. He laughed with them. He called them. Another thing to point out in this, something so obvious we may miss it. Jesus welcomed us, hate to break this to you, not because we're so lovable, but he welcomed us while we were sinners. 
And that's what makes his welcoming unique. He welcomes us in spite of knowing everything about us. And he receives us. And it's not a, hey, it's a drawing close. He welcomes us like that. With much of what he knows about us, remember, standing in defiance of him. Anything, anyone know everything about you? Anyone? Anyone in your life know everything about you? Scary. You know what I'm saying? Scary. We don't even want to know everything about anybody else. Not everything, man. Right? Get into a relationship, friendship, go, I don't, okay, let's, let's start here. Right? Let's start here. Really don't want to, I don't want to know that. Let's just move on. It's why, we don't, it's why we don't share things even to someone that perhaps has been a friend or a spouse for 20, 30, 40 years. We're, we're scared of what the response will be. And so what do we do? We put on a mask of sorts, right? We, we present ourselves as something different or we hold back something so someone won't again realize who we are in our totality. But here's the thing about Jesus. He knows everything. He knows everything, and he welcomes us unlike anyone else would. It's unique. It's like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Let me tell you about a man who knows everything, told me everything about me. Could this be the Messiah? It's a welcoming that is entirely, entirely unique. See, God through Jesus doesn't welcome us because of, but in spite of. It's a beautiful thing. Because in our world, we think, man, for me to be welcomed by everyone, or at least some, I gotta be ripped. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. Beautiful, right? Good looking lid, nice car, good job, education, power, and you'll get in. Jesus says, I don't care about that. I want you, even though I know everything about you. Think about that. And why this is so important, because I know the word sinner doesn't play in 2014 on this side of the planet. I get that, right? I get that. But here's why this is so important to recognize that Jesus welcomes us as sinners. Because it's that very fact that gives us the greatest assurance of our relationship with him. He welcomes us as sinners. Not because of anything we've done or haven't done. He welcomes us that way. That's why it's so important in this discussion to get this, to taste the welcoming aspect of the ministry of Jesus. Here's the second thing to know about how Jesus welcomed us. He welcomed us gladly. He welcomed us with joy. Uh, we already looked at Luke 15, verse 2. Let me pick up that particular text. I got a couple of long texts, right? It's going to be the beginning of Star Wars for a couple of minutes. Let me give you, let me pick this up with you. Beginning back, we'll double back, look at Luke 15, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he, 
He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you see joy and gladness in there? So what's the takeaway for us if we are to welcome as Jesus welcomes? Well, one of the takeaways, quite simply, is that we should not welcome with disdain or reluctance, but gladly. See, sometimes we think God accepts or welcomes us like a parent who has a kid who's just pooped their diaper. You know what I mean? Don't mean to be crass, but like this, right? I mean, I had two boys, and there was times I was doing this, right? Want nothing. Man, where's the hose? Where's the sandblaster? Let's get this kid out of my hands quickly, right? We think that God's like, yeah, she, he, my child, but man, stinky. Really, I don't want, I don't want to be too close. I'll accept with disdain, reluctance. But that's not how God through Christ welcomes us. In fact, in another parable, this is how God through Christ welcomes us. But when the younger son came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now taste this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion. And he ran. And he embraced him and he kissed him. Some fathers can't even do that to their sons here. And this is a picture of our Heavenly Father. Some fathers here, if their son or their daughter went away and did something that would bring such mockery to the family, if they came back, they'd make it a little bit tougher. You gotta teach a lesson. I'm for teaching lessons, but I'm more for extending grace. We always have to side on the side of grace. If you're gonna ever make a mistake, give too much, side on grace. It's a good mistake. You can live without one. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fat and calf, meat. It's good. <laughs> and kill it. No tofu in heaven. <laughs> that's, that's hell. That's hell. That's, that's, right. Thank you for the clap. Appreciate that. Just open up about 100 seats. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That, that's how our God welcomes us. Th that, gladly. Let's party. Let's celebrate, man. Let's eat and dance. 
I've used this illustration before. Sometimes, again, um, we, we sort of picture God like we sort of deal with photos in our, in our wallet or purse or whatever. Like if I asked you, hey, show your driver's license picture, you'd be like, no, ain't doing that, right? If I said, hey, do you have a picture of your kids or your spouse or your best buddy or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or family? You're like, yeah, man. Let me show you a thousand, right? We upload them, right? All of that. See, sometimes we picture God sort of like how we picture a driver's license photo. Yeah. That's one where God's going, no. Let me show you a picture of my child. That's our God. That's our God who has welcomed us. We need to taste that. But not only taste that, after tasting that, model that. Here's another aspect of the welcoming nature of our Jesus. And that is he welcomed without partiality. This has been much of the theme of the book of Romans. God brings salvation to all people, to Jewish people and Gentile people alike. Why is that? Well, Paul makes it very simple for us in Romans 2.11, where he writes there quite simply and directly, for God shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. Peter, remember Peter? Peter in our study of the book of Acts, when he's called to go to Cornelius, the Roman centurion's place, says to him, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him is welcomed by him. In John 6, 37, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But we get this, I think. We're good with this. We get that God accepts all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all colors, and so forth. But there is a more subtle partiality that still surfaces in our context quite often. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes about it in James 2. He writes, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? In other words, that's the gospel. Same thing that Paul does here. This is what God has done for you, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, Jesus came and offered the kingdom to Jew and Gentile alike, certainly, but also to the poor and the leper and the Samaritan and the whore and the tax collector, and the weak, and the strong. He shows no partiality. For in God's kingdom, there is no more Jew or Gentile. There is no more slave or free. 
There is no more barbarian or Scythian. There is no more male and female. All are one in Christ. So how does Jesus welcome us so far? What have we seen? He welcomes us as sinners, giving us great assurance. He welcomes us gladly. He welcomes also without partiality. And then finally, Jesus welcomes us to the glory of God. This is the end goal. We talked about this a little bit last week. Paul in the book of Ephesians writes this in chapter one. God chose us in Jesus. He is God. Him is Jesus. Before the foundation of the world. See, Jesus and the cross was always the plan of God. Always. We'll talk about why in a sec. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. Really important phrase. For adoption as sons. You want to be sons here. If you're a woman, don't make this female. Because Paul is writing about firstborn sons. The ones who inherited all from their father. We all want to be firstborn sons. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. See, God is glorified here and in the heavenlies when a sinner is welcomed in, into the kingdom. Now, why is that? Here's why. Because the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places, when they look at righteous God, can't figure out, can't figure out how it would be that he would accept unrighteous us. It's a mystery to them. The Bible talks about it all the time. How does that work? How can, how can those individuals get grafted and accepted by God? How is that? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And so when you and I, as sinners and unrighteous people, come to him, the heavens declare, holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. Because through Jesus, he's made that mystery now something we understand and get. And so God, as we read about in Ephesians chapter 3, demonstrates that it's through the church, meaning the church coming to Jesus, the church growing in Jesus, receiving Jesus, that declares the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly places. What is the manifold wisdom of God? That thing. The cross. So every time someone comes to Jesus, the heavens erupt. Because the glory of God is displayed. Where is the greatest display of the glory of God? On that thing. And so why does Jesus welcome us to the glory of God? Demonstrating again to the cosmos the wonder of the majesty of the glorious grace of God through Jesus on the cross. This leads sweetly to section two of this message where Paul lays out what I call the prophecies. Four Old Testament prophecies recorded in verses eight to 12, specifically nine to 12. Let me read and then I'll laser in on them. That's my favorite word today, laser. I don't know why. It's the word of the day. It's like electric company. Uh, ver <laughs> I, three of you understand what I'm talking about. The rest of you who are all born in the 2010s or whatever. Verse eight, let me read it. <laughs> Right. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jewish people, those who kept the law, 
to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, here they come, four prophecies, one after the other. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And him will the Gentiles hope. So what's going on? What's Paul doing? Well, what Paul does in giving these four prophecies is demonstrate that it's always been the plan of God to extend his grace and mercy and salvation to all people. So he's demonstrating something that he has done already in the book of Romans. He's, he's affirming this. And like I said, he gives four prophecies. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 9, halfway through, Paul quotes from Psalm 18, verse 49, where the psalmist sings praises to God among the Gentiles or the nations, the Gentile nations. In verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, which takes this idea all the way back to Moses. So it's not a new idea. It goes all the way back to the beginning. In verse 11, Paul quotes from Psalm 117, verse 1, praise the Lord among the nations, meaning the Gentile nations. And then in verse 12, it's a bit of a confusing verse. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. Isaiah said that there would be a root of Jesse. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesse was the father of King David. Jesse being the father of King David, the king from whom the Messiah would come, the Davidic line, who would rise in context here, especially in the book of Isaiah, out of humiliation to reign over the nations. But not over the nations with a rod of iron but over the nations with salvation and hope. See, that's what salvation is. Salvation is hope. It's, it's a certain hope, by the way. It's not wishful thinking. It's a certain home, hope grounded and founded on something. This is a saving hope so that the nations will hope in the Messiah. And once again, and I need to ask it again because it's so important, how did God do this? How did God bring all of this together? Well, in and through and by Jesus. In Jesus, God showed us two really important things. Just double back, if you don't mind. Look at verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, what we read there is that in Jesus, all the promises of God were fulfilled. Take a look. I'll read it one more time with you. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jewish people, to do what? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So Jesus fulfilled the promises, and he did this so the people of the promises, as we've seen the Jewish people, patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Dave, uh, Jacob, they were given the promises, and Jesus fulfilled them all. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he did that with the Jewish people, but look at verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So what does Jesus do for us? Extends mercy. Fulfills promises and extends mercy. All in Jesus. Everybody brought together. And what should this make us do? I'm a little bit scared. I'm going to fall into that bad boy. I'm going to back off. That would be uploaded fast. Uh, so what should be the natural reaction of all that? All this? Worship. I mean, go back again, look at the four prophecies. 
Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Look at verse 10. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And then if you double back and look at verses 5 and 6, the text that we looked at last week, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Why, Paul? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship. Praising his name for all of the things that he has accomplished through Jesus. That should be the outcome. That should be the outcome. That, by the way, is a, just kind of a side little parenthetical statement why the gathering of God's people is so important. For we come together, red, yellow, black, and white, old, young, good looking, some not, not so much, um, speaking of myself, uh, all those kind of things, we come together with one voice and we pray, we praise his name and there's something that happens when the body gathers together to do that. I know that gets resisted today, especially from the young super hip guys that are planting churches that it doesn't, it matters, man. There are things that we can only experience here and then there are things that we can only experience by ourselves in a smaller context or group of people, but both are important. We come together and we glorify his name because we are here, one, because of him. Because of him. All this leads to the final section of this message, all wrapped up in verse 13, what I call the benediction. Let me read verse 13 if you don't mind. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that, the, by, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And with this verse, Paul ends his discussion on the weak and the strong. Everything hereafter in the book of Romans is really just a long postscript. But not only does Paul end his thoughts on this topic in verse 13. I also want you to know something else about this benediction, and that is it is hallowed ground. It is a sweet benediction. It's one of the sweetest benedictions in all the New Testament scriptures. What makes it so sweet, sweet is understanding what Paul is calling for in it, what this benediction really is. Do you, do you see what he's calling, it, calling us to in it? It's calling us to be totally spiritually satisfied. Totally, spiritually, satisfied. It's, it's like Paul is saying, may we be totally spiritually satisfied, filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with hope to overflowing. That's his prayer here. For that's what salvation was intended to bring. This benediction actually, if you think about it, sums up the whole letter of Romans. It's Paul saying, may we know forgiveness. May we know peace. May we know hope. May we know love. May we know victory over sin. May we know the power of the Spirit of God. May we know the obedience of a spiritual life. May we know the use of our spiritual gifts. May we know right relationships with people, a right relationship with the government. May we know a sense of urgency that time is short. May we know how to care for each other as weak and strong. May we, know, 
May we know all that God could possibly overflow to us in the power of the Spirit and thus be a fully satisfied believer. That's what this prayer of benediction is. It's a prayer of benediction saying, may we find total satisfaction in Jesus. That's it. It's, it's a sweet benediction. What's also sweet about it is that in spite of it being written 2,000 years ago, what we have just walked through, culminating with verse 13, is demonstrated in ongoing ways today. As we've told you, we're baptizing a bunch of Westsiders this afternoon. Westsiders who've had lives transformed. Individuals that will declare in a couple of hours publicly through the sacrament of baptism what Jesus has done for them. That Jesus died in their place and rose from the grave. But it's more than that. That their, their identity is in Jesus. That in Jesus they have died to their old lives and they have been raised to newness of life. It's a, it's a double display of what Jesus has done and what has happened to them in Jesus. And, and we love hearing the stories on these baptism Sundays of, of what's taken place in people's lives. And we want you to hear their story as well. We do that. We try to make that helpful to you. We hand out testimonies in written form, the longer testimonies. I hope you got one when you walked in. We also have a video of the testimonies of people who shared, and we want to share that now. But let me give you a little instruction. Here's what's going to take place. We're going to share these video testimonies. Uh, but after they're done, the band will come back up and begin leading us into a time of response. When they come back and start playing, would you just rise with them when they come back after, again, the video is done? During that time, if you're a guest, we walk into a time of response. We call it that because we simply want to respond to the teaching of God's word. We believe that God speaks to us through his word by the power of the spirit. And so we respond in worship. During that time, we'll have a couple of couples Two couples up front that would love to pray with you over things that are going on in your life, perhaps over something I've talked about or something else entirely different. We'll also have people that will grab the elements that are set up on the table in front of me here, the elements of bread and wine. The element of bread is in a basket, it's been cut up. Why? Well, it's a symbol of what Jesus, Jesus did for us. He was literally cut up on the cross for us. He's the bread of life, hung on the cross, pierced for our transgressions. So if you're a follower of Jesus, come and take that piece of bread and then dip it into the wine or the juice. They'll have two cups labeled at the bottom, whatever your conscience allows. Take that bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. What is that? It's a symbol of the blood of Jesus shed on that same cross for our sins. So take the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice and partake as we remember Jesus, celebrate Jesus, long for Jesus together. It's a common meal, one. It's a communal meal, communion. Partake that way, and on the back end, Chad will give you some information on things going on in this ministry and remind you of some other things. So that's what we're going to do, okay? Lots of instructions. We're going to run the video. Before I do that, let me pray, and then we'll go from there. Jesus, we love you. We love you. And we thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for coming willingly. And Jesus, we thank you that when you ascended to the right hand of the Father, you sent your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, as the Spirit is talked about in the book of Acts, drawing men and women to himself, drawing men and women out of the conviction of what's gone on in their life if they've lived in 
in, in rebellious ways, contrary ways, and have come to you as you've invaded and hijacked their lives and brought them back to newness and fullness of life. Old gone, new come. And so we thank you for the video testimonies that we're about to see that talk about that. Going on today in 2014, we thank you for that. It's a great joy for us. I also pray that as we go into a time of response after that, Father, that you would just rest heavy your spirit on this place and that whatever we come in with today, that you would press into those things that need to be pressed in on. I pray for those that don't know you. I pray that they would come to you, say yes to Jesus. They want to be a follower of Jesus. I don't want to do my own thing anymore. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I don't get everything, but I get enough to want to follow Jesus. I pray that that would take place. Pray for those that are hurting today, really hurting, bringing a lot of garbage in with them, stuff that's happened to them or perhaps decisions they've made that they regret. I just pray that they come to you, understanding that you're like the father in the parable, just looking forward to receiving us back. I pray that they would, they would, they would just receive, receive that grace that you want to give to them. And this would be a sweet time of ministry. I pray that you'd be pleased with it. We love you desperately. We love you. We need more of you. So just rest on this time, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.